For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Lord God, as we consider your great love for us, a love that is perfectly visible in the life and death of your son Jesus, we recognize how limited and how deficient we are in our devotion to you and in our love of others. And so in a moment of quiet now in our own hearts, we come before you and we confess and we say sorry to you for the many wanderings and weaknesses within our hearts. Lord God, we are truly sorry for these things. And in the same breath, we are so thankful that in Christ, as far as the east is from the west, so far you have removed our transgressions from us. We do pray for our children and our young people represented in in this church. We pray for them as, as many begin their final term of the school year. We pray, Lord, that you would help them in all their studies. But more significantly, Lord, would you help them to stand well for Jesus in this world. And as we think about the children and young people, we pray for the work with children and young people. We pray for Lighthouse in the summer. We thank you for that regional-wide event and the numbers of children it brings together to enjoy time together and to hear about Jesus together. We pray in advance, Lord, that you would bless that week richly and that many young lives would be changed for eternity. And Lord, we do echo that prayer for our students represented here as well, those who've already gone back and those who are going back later. We pray for them, Father, that they wouldn't just cling on by their fingertips to Christ and scrape through these few years. We pray, Lord, that you would help them flourish as followers of Jesus in all they do. We take time as well this morning, Lord, to pray for those who are struggling and hurting in different ways. We pray for those battling with physical illness. We pray for those who feel lonely and vulnerable. Pray for those struggling with prevailing sin. Pray for those who are lacking joy in their walk with the Lord. We ask you, Father, that you would turn their eyes heavenwards, that they may rejoice all the more in the remedy and the great hope that is held out in the gospel. And finally, Father, as we come to your word now, we do pray for the preaching of it. We pray for those places all across this country in your world in, your world in which the, the good news of the gospel is held out this morning. And we pray for Mark as he comes to preach to us shortly, Lord. And we pray that our ears would be open to hear whatever you have to say to us. Would you help us this morning as listeners to respond rightly in faith and obedience to your word? And we pray all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. And Tom Davies is going to come to read to us from Mark chapter 1. Now the reading this morning is from Mark chapter 1. Uh, verses 14 to 20 and in the church bibles that's on page 1002 and in the large print bibles on page 1523 mark chapter 1 verse 14 the calling of the first disciples 
After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, said Jesus, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tom, for reading. Um, well, we're going to look at this little passage together. This is the last of our uh, series we've been doing in the book of Mark, uh, helping us to prepare for Easter. We're through Easter now, and, and this is the last of, of that little series. It's been a series in, in Mark chapter 14 through to chapter 16, and now we're going to kind of backtrack and go all the way back to chapter 1 for the final in this little series to help us think about what it means to be a disciple. Uh, and we're going to look particularly at three words that come in chapter 1, verse 17, that if we understand them correctly, change absolutely everything. But I want to begin by making um, four observations. I hope they're observations that you would agree with. I think they're ones that probably resonate with the hearts of most people. Here they come. I imagine most people would say they want purpose in their life. I don't know many people who wake up and go, well, I, I don't really need any direction today. Um, I'm happy just to waste my life. Uh, that's a fair assumption. We want purpose in our life. Second assumption is that you and I want a sense of belonging. We, we long to be loved, and we long to love. To be able to express love, to have a sense of belonging, is something that matters hugely to us as human beings. We want a purpose, and we want a sense of belonging. The third one is that, I guess for many of us, we want a sense of security, whether that be financial security or a happy home or, or living in a peaceful nation. Um, security really matters to us. And the last one is enjoyment. I don't know many people who wake up and, like Eeyore, want to be miserable today. We want to enjoy our lives. That is a good thing. And the good things, and I think it's a good thing to desire these things. So the question isn't so much, are these things good? Is it, is it good to have purpose or belonging or a sense of security or happiness? The bigger question is, how often do you or I stop to think about where I can achieve these things? Where, where, do, where do I find these things in God's world? What is it that actually gives me purpose? What is it that gives me a sense of belonging and so on? Uh, having made these observations, here are a few other observations. I feel often as human beings we can be quite short-sighted. I'll give you some examples. We want purpose in our life, but so often if we stop and think about it, the purpose for our life so quickly revolves around us. I give my life my meaning, and so purpose becomes, in a sense, quite selfish quite quickly. Uh, we want a sense of belonging. We want to be loved. We want to love. But how often do we stop and actually connect that desire to love and to be loved with the God who is love, who's the source of love? Uh, we want security, and yet you'll know how fickle life can be. We can build as much financial security around us as we want, 
and security in our homes and in our future planning, all wise things to do. But you and I will know that those things never ultimately give us security. Uh, It's very easy to lose a job. It's very easy for sickness to completely change our world's plans. And of course, death, which is often very unexpected, can be hugely painful. And we've got no ultimate security, in this world at least, in those things. And enjoyment, rather like a sense of belonging, I want to love, I want to be loved, but have I connected my desire for love with the God of love? Same with enjoyment. I want to enjoy my life, I want to create enjoyment for others. But do we stop to think about where enjoyment comes from? What is the source of all enjoyment? The Bible says God gives us every good thing to richly enjoy. And yet so often we just enjoy things in the world, completely ignoring the giver of every good thing. Well, there's a little statement on the screen. I'd love you to think about this. We're going to return to it at the end, and I want you to fill in the dots. Purpose and success in my life will be found when. I wonder what you would put there at the end of that sentence. And to be a little bit provocative, here's some words from an American pastor in the 19th century, a guy called D.L. Moody, who famously once said, failure is being successful at things that do not matter. Now, I don't know what you've put on the line, dot, 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 and I'm not going to ask you, but make sure it is something that matters, because none of us want to be failures. Well, as you think about that, I've asked Val, who's sitting somewhere, where's Val? Brilliant. Val's going to read to us a poem. This is a, quite a famous poem you may have heard before. It's by a Canadian guy called Alan Francis. It was written in 1926. Just have a listen to these words. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never travelled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race, dividing history in two. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Yeah, thank you, Val. 
It's remarkable, really, isn't it, that history has been divided in two by this person, the Lord Jesus. And yet, for so many people, Jesus Christ is just a swear word, if his, words, uh, his name is uttered at all. But I want us to think this morning about just the three words that Jesus speaks in the story that was read to us earlier, come follow me, because really it's an invitation. And it's an invitation which, if we understand it, will change absolutely everything in our life forever. And I'd love us to reflect on it. I'm sure it's familiar to us. As we think about that invitation, I don't think anybody here was alive in 1914. Uh, but these were posters that were put, put around in 1914. You'll probably recognize Lord Kitchener on the left, uh, leading the British Army, uh, and other posters that were calling women into service as well. And when these posters arrived, in the moment of greatest need, when uh, Britain went to war in the First World War, These were really, in a sense, invitations. They were invitations to the nation to step up and serve, to go to battle or to come and serve in the munitions factories or to serve by growing vegetables to support the war effort. They were invitations, but actually they were more than invitations, weren't they? Kitchener wasn't putting this invitation out and kind of saying, um, you know, if you've got nothing better to do, if you just fancy it, you know, there's a bit of a war going on, and if you fancy coming and helping. It was an invitation, but it came with authority, It was really an invitation saying, come and fight. Uh, To the women, it it wasn't at the time a kind of, well, if you've got nothing else to do, uh, why don't you grow some vegetables to help the men who are fighting? It it was an invitation, but it came with a real authority, a command. And I want us to see in our passage, look at the authority of the words of Jesus when he comes and speaks to these disciples for the first time. Because there's these guys who are just fishing, they're minding their own business, they're going about their normal day, and Jesus says in verse 17, come and follow me. Uh, presumably he's a complete stranger to them he walks up to these fishermen who maybe have never seen him before and just says follow me and if you were peter or andrew you'd probably say utterly bonkers who are you why would i want to follow you where are we going what are we going to do how much is it going to cost me have i got an insurance policy but jesus just comes and says come follow me And remarkably, you see in verse 18, at once they left their nets and followed. There's something inherently powerful about the call of Jesus, that when he calls and we hear, people just respond. And then it goes on a little later, and there's two other guys, James and John, and Jesus gives them exactly the same call, and they just follow. And this is the pattern you get all the way through Mark's gospel. Just If you're in Mark's gospel, just have a look at chapter 1. Jesus meets a man with an evil spirit. And he says to the evil spirit, come out of him, chapter 1, verse 25. And the evil spirit shakes the man violently and leaves him immediately. And the people are so amazed, they say, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives commands to evil spirits and they obey him. Then you go forward to chapter 2 and there's this man who's paralyzed. No doctor can heal him, been paralyzed all his life. Jesus forgives his sins and then says to the man, pick up your mat and walk. And you read in verse 12, he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they said, we have never seen anything like this before. And then you get into chapter 4 and there's Jesus on the lake with his fishermen friends, his disciples. They're, they're hardened seasoned fishermen. They know what they're doing. But there's this huge storm so big that the fishermen think they're going to die. And they cry out, teacher, don't you care if we're going to drown? And you know the story. Jesus just stands up and says, be quiet. And this enormous storm calms down in an instant. 
And they're left asking the question, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And if we're cynical or maybe sceptical, maybe we're thinking, yeah, but it's just a story. Surely they didn't just leave everything. I've shown us this little grid before. Along the top are a list of ancient documents, history documents, if you like. And on the right-hand side, you see here the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you'll see how old, the, the, when the original document was, was written, you'll see the oldest copy that has been found. But here are two things I'd love you to look at. And we've looked at this once before. Look at the gap between the oldest document, the original document of, of the biblical scripts and the, the next copy that they find, and the gap. The bigger the gap, the more opportunity there would have been for the words to be twisted and changed and not to be authentic. But when you look at God's word, the gap between the original and the first copy was very, very small compared to all the other documents that you would agree probably are historical. And then you look at the number of manuscripts. If you've got more manuscripts which you can compare, you can see where errors have been made. And for the biblical evidence, there's way, way more evidence that what we have in the Bible is accurate and true. And so if we're going to believe some of the histories that we will learn in school, and we should, we'd be foolish just to say, oh, God's word is not relevant. Because just from a historical, archaeological point of view, there's way more evidence for these stories being true than any other thing that you would believe is history. I hope that gives you confidence when jesus calls people follow notice another thing though this call comes from jesus when i was at school i had two teachers i didn't particularly like one was my english teacher she was called mrs windle we had other names for her i don't think i can repeat them the other was my dt teacher um didn't particularly like him i don't even remember his name we called him shredder that was his nickname I don't know why these teachers didn't like me. Perhaps you could guess. I'm not sure. Um, But I didn't really like them. I wish I could have chosen my teachers. I wish I could have chosen the student teacher who was teaching DT at the time because she was absolutely beautiful. (laughs) I was a little boy, and my DT teacher was stunning. And I wish I could have chosen her to be my teacher, but I had no choice. I was put in a class, and the teacher came. In Jesus' time, if you were a pupil, you got to choose your teacher. How cool is that? You would go to a rabbi, a teacher, and you would say, I want to sit under you. I want you to teach me. The astonishing thing is, when Jesus calls these disciples, he breaks all convention of the time because he comes and calls his followers and his pupils. He says, come, follow me. When a person puts their trust in the Lord Jesus, becomes a follower of Christ, it's not simply a decision that you or I make in our own heart. It's something that God enables Because God has to change our heart so that we can hear his voice and respond to his call. It's not simply a choice I make. God chooses me and draws me to himself and enables belief. And you see in this story that the Lord Jesus calls these fishermen and they follow. Notice the third thing. It's a call to very ordinary people. This should give you some encouragement Notice here, the writer Mark talks about who Jesus calls. He's he's gathering together a group of people through whom he wants to change the world. And this is, as we looked at last week, Jesus' great plan. He chooses the first four of his 12 disciples are fishermen. And it's through these fishermen he's going to change everything. The Jewish historian Josephus reckoned in the first century there were about 330 fishing boats on Galilee, about 16 ports around the lake. Fishing was a big business, 
But if you're a fisherman on Galilee, that's freshwater fishing. You'd have been competing with the maritime fishermen. And you didn't eat a lot of meat in those days. Fish was the main thing. But fresh fish was a kind of delicacy. And so these fishermen had to be brilliant at what they did because they'd be selling their fish to the big cities, to places like Jerusalem and, and further afield. These fishermen were brilliant, but they were very ordinary men. In that age, if you were a kind of tertiary-educated, um, kind of living in the city, affluent person, you would have described people who lived in Galilee as kind of country bumpkins, a kind of derogatory term, a little bit backward, so much so that if you were from Galilee, you weren't allowed to read the Torah, the law of God in the synagogue. That's how it was then. But isn't it extraordinary, when Jesus calls these men to follow him, he doesn't put them through a set of exams. It's not like entering into the civil service where only the elite are pulled out. He just chooses four very, very ordinary men and says, come and follow me. I came across uh, some funny job adverts this week. I don't know if any of you have a particular desire to fly, uh, to be an air hostess on a budget airline in Pakistan or India. But if you do, this is your job advert. And all you have to do to be an air hostess on Air Blue, it says in the middle there, is be over five foot two tall and speak English and Urdu. So if any of you are looking for a change of career, uh, Air Blue is there for you. Uh, this is another advert. This is a slightly cynical one that appeared on April Fool's Day. Someone who I think doesn't like the Conservative Party. I had to blank out one of the words, but I'll let you read that for yourself. It's tongue in cheek, okay? I'm not having a political stance here. This was April Fool's Day. But uh, this person will sort of claim, if you don't have a conscience, then come and work for the Department of of Work and Pensions. Uh, And so it went on. There's another guy who was a builder who was completely sick and tired of his labourers. He put this advert in the paper. (laughs) So if uh, you're hardworking, maybe you can uh, apply for this job. And the last one, I think there were some words missing from this particular invitation for a job. For the sake of those listening on the tape later, um, you've got to be 18 years old to apply for this waitress job, but you need to have 20 years of experience. Um, Pretty impressive. The point is, with all of these job applications, uh, any job application you've ever applied for, there are certain credentials you have to fulfill. You have to be skilled at X. You have to know Y. When it comes to following the Lord Jesus, the only requirement is obedience. And he calls people from all sorts of backgrounds And just says, come and follow me. And of course, when he says, come follow me, he's not talking about, come and follow me on Twitter. He's not talking about armchair followers who just pick and choose when they'll follow. He's talking about commitment. And that is his call on our life. This is an advert I think I've shown you again before, written by one of my heroes, Ernest Shackleton, who is a famous explorer. Extraordinary advert to put in the paper when you're trying to get to a group of, together a group of men who are going to follow you to the Arctic, uh, to the Antarctic. Sorry, uh, maybe a little bit like the job advert I put out when I take some of the men off to the mountains. And you probably think bonkers to go with Mark anywhere in the mountains, but this is the advert he put out. And the reason he put this advert out is because he wanted us to, he wanted those people to understand. Though it was an extraordinary call, come and follow me, it was a call that would be very costly. So the fourth thing I want to look at is to come and understand that these words of Jesus, come follow me, they are a very costly call. Do you notice there in verse 14, we read about this guy John who was put in prison. This is John the Baptist. He's a functionally kind of the last prophet. 
And his job was to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And part of preparing people for Jesus' arrival was to warn them to get ready for him. So much so that it put him in prison, hence what you see here in verse 14. And Herod eventually killed him, beheaded him. It can cost you to follow. And as I said earlier, when Jesus says, come, follow me, he's not saying, follow me on Twitter. He's saying, follow me, and it may well cost you. Sometimes to be a Christian means to swim against the tide, because everybody else in the world will say, what are you doing? You're wasting your life. It can be difficult. And so if you or I were looking for comfort, just wanting a comfortable, easy life, then don't be a Christian, because it's not an easy life. There's far more comfortable things to be doing. Second thing is, it's a costly call in the sense of our independence. Do you see the words of Jesus? He says, repent and believe. That word repent literally means to change one's mind. And to believe doesn't just mean sort of intellectual assent. It means to put your trust in. So to repent and believe is essentially to turn around and to put our trust in something new. And you see exactly that in these disciples. They leave their nets. It's essentially a U-turn. They turn from their old way of life to follow the Lord Jesus and they believe in him. They put their trust in him and they go. And it's remarkable they go without asking any questions. So compelling is his call that draws them. If I'm looking for independence, then don't follow Jesus because he calls us to surrender our independence and to put him first. Third thing to notice, sometimes following Jesus can cost you everything. And you see here with these disciples, they leave their nets. That's their livelihood. Who knows what could have happened to what they left behind, but they didn't ask questions. They just went. But there's something so compelling about this call from the Lord Jesus that they just went. Now, of course, we know this doesn't mean they abandoned fishing. All the way through the Gospels, we read they continued fishing. Just in chapter 4, they're on the lake. What are they doing? Crossing over. Elsewhere, they're fishing. They continue in what they're doing. But the point is, when Jesus Christ says, come, follow me, he's not saying, give up everything you do in your life. Come and live some monastic life with me. He says, carry on what you're doing, but do it now with me at the center. Follow me. It's like getting up on Monday morning. It's not about abandoning our jobs. It's about going to our jobs with a completely new mindset. My work isn't ultimately about my own happiness and about just getting in the money so I can pay the bills. My work is about honoring the one who's given me the ability to work and to be a blessing to those around me through the work that I do. It's not about abandoning our old life. It's about a transformation of our life. And that is what he is calling them to come and do. You see, this sense of purpose that I want, the sense of belonging, the security that I long for, my desire for happiness, these are all things that ultimately come when we listen to the call of Jesus and come and follow him. Well, there are four little observations from our passage, but I just want to close with two questions. One's a kind of warning. Maybe you're thinking, well, what if, what if I don't? And it's a really good question to ask. What if that cost of following him is too great? What if I don't? It's just worth reading these words that Jesus spoke in chapter 8. Uh, we mentioned these a, a number of times through this little series. Jesus calls the crowd to himself with his disciples and says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. 
What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can a person give in exchange for their soul? Now, these words rung true with me not long ago when I was having a drink with a friend of mine and he was telling me that his mother had cancer and we were talking and I just sort of said to him, very openly and honestly, kind of as a person of no faith who has no belief in God, how do you deal with death? I was just asking him and we were sharing a few exchanges and he just said to me, I believe very sincerely, but I just don't think about it. And I went away very sad. I was thinking, is that really the very best? The one thing that we know none of us can escape and the very best answer we can give to, so what happens when I die is, I don't know, I'm just not going to think about it. That's a great tragedy. And, and you see in this verse here, what, what, is, what purpose is there? What good is it if I gain the whole world, if I have so much success in my life, but I haven't answered that one question which I need to answer and I forfeit my soul because I don't know the God who is the giver of all life. It's a really big question to ask and it's worth thinking about for your own witness to your friends, for your own heart. And also, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, just to think about in terms of how are you investing your life and your time? Is it in something that really matters? But here's the encouragement. What if I do? What if I do listen to this call and come and follow? Well, I don't know how you would complete that sentence on the dotted line. But I think this passage encourages us to complete it like this. Purpose and success in my life will be found when I respond to the call of Jesus. And here's why. The call of Jesus on my life isn't ultimately a call to do something, though it involves a lot of action. It's ultimately a call into a relationship with him. Being a Christian is not about being a decent person or keeping a moral code, or giving lots of money to people who are in need. Being a Christian is ultimately about a relationship with the God who made us. And why does this matter so much? Because as we've looked at, and this is for the last time, you and I long for purpose in our life. And our purpose was to respond to his call on our life, to know the God who made us. And when our life connects with that great story, suddenly our life takes on a whole new set of meanings. You and I long for a sense of belonging. And when I come to understand the incredible depth of love that God has for me, as we reflected this morning with little Bella, thanking God for her life and the love that he has for her, that desire I have to love and to be loved is rooted in a God who is love. Suddenly it helps me to love in a much deeper sense. You and I want this, have this desire for security. Well, what greater security there is than to have security in death? The one thing that I have no answer to, but he has an answer to it because he's the giver of all life and proved at Easter that he had power over death. And you and I want enjoyment. Well, how much more will the good things in our life make sense and be enjoyed when we can acknowledge the giver who gives them? I hope you see from this passage, they're just three words of Jesus. Come, follow me. But the three words, if we understand them, change absolutely everything and give us a purpose for our life, which we'll find nowhere else. Amen. Shall we close with a final prayer? Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee and he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. 
Come, follow me, he said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Heavenly Father, as we go from here, please remind us of the incredible love that you have for us. Thank you that you don't call important people, privileged people, special people. You call ordinary people to yourself. We thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. We thank you today for this celebration of new life. And please help us this week to be obedient to your call, to follow you and to help fish for people, to help other people come to understand the extraordinary love that you have for them. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.